0: Father in heaven, open our hearts and our minds, speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we lay this third piece of the foundation. May we find hope in this, in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start today with some amazing news. And here's the amazing news god's kingdom wins god's kingdom wins okay maybe that's not news maybe you knew that or at least it's not new that message has been out there for a little while but there was a time when there was a certain wondering amongst humans as to which kingdom would win and in fact there was a king who found himself musing on that subject about the kingdoms of the world. And in a most unexpected and unusual way, the Lord chose to speak to that king. We pick up the story in Daniel chapter 2, verse 29. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff, On a threshing floor in the summer, the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The one referred to here as your majesty is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, who came to power around the year 605 B.C., and it would be Nebuchadnezzar and his armies that would go and conquer Judah, and destroy the city of Jerusalem and bring many of the inhabitants of that land to Babylon. And so it is most striking that it was to this one who had seemingly destroyed God's kingdom, right? Because Israel understood itself that way. We're God's kingdom. Yet to the one who had done this, the Lord sent this vision. Now the one interpreting the vision is Daniel. And this is quite a remarkable time in Bible history. What was going on here was intense. So intense that that God actually had three prophets going at the same time. There was Jeremiah, who was still in the land of Judah until the city was completely destroyed. There was Ezekiel, who'd gotten taken away early on in one of the early captivities, and he was with the Jews that were in Babylon. And then there was Daniel who was in the court of the king. See, the Lord Lord covers everything. He doesn't leave anything out. And in the important times, he's got his people where he needs them to be. But this dream has come to Nebuchadnezzar, a dream of gold and silver and bronze and iron, and then iron and clay. And this whole This whole chapter is is worthy of a great deal of time, and we spent time on it back when we did the series on Daniel several years ago. Today, I don't so much want to focus on the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the feet of iron and clay. We'll talk about that a little bit. But today, I want to talk to you about the stone, the one that was cut but not by human hands. It's a very significant inclusion in this vision. We'll see why here in a a minute. Daniel 2, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom." Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with the clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever." Now notice this verse. "'This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces.'" So this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, that Daniel has explained, is a description of the progression of history and the kingdoms that would rule that region of the earth where God's people were and on from there to the end. You had the Babylonians, after them would come the Medes and the Persians, after them the Macedonians, the Greeks, after them Rome. But then you have the mix. It's a story of the progression of human reality. You see it all the time, right? One one group rises for a season and then they fall, and then another group rises for a season and then they fall. But all of this is set in, in opposition, in juxtaposition with the kingdom that never falls. You see, the kingdoms of men, they go up and down, but this stone cut without men's hands is a different kingdom. It's not a kingdom of men. It comes from outside and it smashes the kingdoms of men and grows to fill the earth. This rock represents the culmination of the victory of God. This is his great purpose. And the victory of God will be final when His kingdom, cut out from His mountain with no help from human hands, has destroyed the kingdoms of men and has filled the earth. The earth is filled with your glory. We're focusing on the messages of the three angels. And for the last several weeks, we've been focused specifically on the first angel. Let me read you those words. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So I've been suggesting to you that this first angel represents the victory of God. And this angel comes and announces three key points, points that would be particularly significant for the time in which this angel goes forth. The very first is he comes with the everlasting gospel. We talked about this two Sabbaths ago, and if you missed that, I encourage you to go back to the archives and and familiarize yourself with it because this is foundational. This is where our faith begins, the everlasting gospel, the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that God has won the victory. And when you confess that you believe that it is as the Bible says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, When you believe those two pieces, that he is the one prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah to come, and also the literal Son of God, the day you believe that fully in your heart, you have become Christian. That's what Christian means. People who believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Take away any piece of that, not Christian. I'm not trying to be mean with that. I'm just saying Christian is a descriptive word. It describes those who believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's very simple. And it's foundational if you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist because Christian is the first piece. And then we skipped a part and we went to the end of the passage last Sabbath and we talked about the Creator God. We talked last Sabbath about the fact that for most of the history of the world, everyone, every nation, every people assumed some kind of a God somewhere, somehow created the world. Now that sounds a little strange to us because we live in a very unusual time. The time we live in is really the only time in the history of the world where a significant portion of the population believes that somehow the universe came into existence without a God. And isn't it interesting that right at this time, the first angel would go out with the message, believe in Jesus your Savior, but also believe in God the Creator. Why does it matter so much? Well, here's why it matters so much, because the third piece of this is coming. And here's how it works. You see, if God is the Creator, then He also has the right to make law, and He also has the right to bring judgment. But if God is not the creator, he has no business-making law and he has no right for judgment. He's just an outside power that's taking over. So if we lose that notion of God as creator, if we let that go, the entire enterprise of the faith falls apart. Because first of all, if Jesus is the son of God and God claims the identity as creator and he's not, that makes God a liar. That makes what is Jesus then and what in the world was he doing? You see how the whole thing falls apart? And this next piece makes zero sense if God is not the creator. Because, you see, today we're going to talk about the third piece of this angel's message. But as I got into it this week, I realized I can't tell you everything in the time we have today that I want to tell you about this. So we're actually going to break it into two pieces. Today we're going to talk specifically about judgment. Next Sabbath, we're going to talk about why the founders of the Adventist church believed that the time of judgment had come. So we're going to do that next Sabbath. We're actually going to break this into two pieces. But today I want to talk to you specifically about this piece called judgment and where it fits in. There are three parts to the victory of God. Number one, the victory that Jesus achieves for us with his life, death, and resurrection. Number two, the acknowledgement of the reality of God as creator, because if he's not, the whole thing falls apart. And number three, the judgment. Why is that part of it? Well, let's look at it this way. In the beginning, God creates this world. And he creates for this world a race of people called humans. And he makes us in the image of God, and he gives us authority in this world. And unfortunately, we ally ourselves with God's enemy. And God's creation is marred. But God is not content to see us destroyed. So he makes a plan. And that plan is that Jesus will come and be born one of us. And as a human, he will redeem us from our failure and restore us into relationship with God. So Jesus comes and wins the victory. God creates a perfect world. It falls into trouble. Jesus comes and wins the victory. But we've been living in the years after Jesus since his victory, and the world's still a mess, right? So think about this logically for a second. God's creator, Jesus wins the victory, and nothing changes. Was there really any point in the other two things? If there isn't a point somewhere along the timeline where God restores the original order, then what was the point of Jesus coming in the middle, right? So there's three pieces to this. And if God can't restore the original order, then sin was too big of a problem for God to handle. So all three of these are critical. God creates, Jesus wins the victory, and then judgment. You see, judgment is the means by which God restores the original order. Now, this Daniel 2 prophecy that we started with gives the great framework that all prophecy fits into. If you only understand one prophecy in the Bible, make sure you understand Daniel 2 because every other prophecy will fit in here. It starts out with Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar would fall to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes Medes under Darius and the Persians under Cyrus would come and attack the city and defeat the Babylonians. And then the Medes would kind of decrease, and the Persians really would become the power in that kingdom. And everyone would think that they were unstoppable, until a young man named Alexander, who would later be called Alexander the Great, would rally the Macedonians and the Greeks and would come from the west at lightning speed and destroy the Persian Empire, just utterly destroy it. Nothing ever stood in Alexander's way. He kept going and he kept going and he kept going and he got all the way to India and he was fighting in India and he was winning over there until one day his soldiers said, enough. And they turned around and went home. They didn't go home because they ever got beat. They went home because they got tired of winning, I guess. They turned around and went home, and Alexander made it back as far as Babylon, where he died in his 30s, having conquered everything he could get his army to fight. Kind of makes you feel like an underachiever, doesn't it? After he died, his kingdom would break into four parts. And out of one of those parts, a little city by the name of Rome would grow in importance until it consumed the whole of that empire and became the mighty Roman Empire that would be in place when Jesus would come and even after that in the early days of the church. But here's the thing about Rome. It never really got defeated. No great empire came along after Rome defeated it and took over that whole area rome just sort of disintegrated into what are today the nations of europe and the nations of the middle east and you know a little bit of history you know the days we're living in have the nations of europe and the middle east ever been able to come together again nope so what did the image had it had a head of gold then it had silver and then it had bronze and then it had iron but do you remember what the feet were iron mixed with clay iron and clay don't mix and that's the reality and that's been the reality since the end of Rome and that is where we're living but I want you to notice something about this vision the next move in the vision is not a movement of a kingdom of men because the next thing that happens is the stone cut without hands that strikes the feet in the days of those kings, in the days of the division. The stone strikes and destroys the history of failure of man, and the stone representing the kingdom of God grows and fills the earth. The next great kingdom to rule will not rule because of human might, but will rule because of God himself. And it will be set up in a time when no single nation dominates. This is what the prophecy tells us. Now, it is the expectation that God is about to set up his kingdom that puts the Adventist in Seventh-day Adventist. Okay, so that's the name of the church. Seventh-day is pretty obvious. That's why we're here today. But that second word, Adventist, Advent means the Lord's appearing. So the first Advent was we commemorate with Christmas. That's the first Advent. The second Advent will be when Jesus comes again. And that word is what makes us Adventists. Again, it's a descriptive word. Sometimes we get a little confused on what it describes. We think it describes a lifestyle or a behavior or something like that. No, what it means is we are a people anticipating the second coming of the Lord. It's a very simple term. Just like Christian means a person who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, an Adventist is a person who believes Jesus is coming again. And next Sabbath again, I'll tell you why our founders believed that he was coming again soon. But for today we're focused on judgment. What is it and why should you be happy that it's about to happen? Okay, three points right now for you to consider. First, in the end, it's God who sets up the kingdom that will never end. All of the kingdoms of men rise and fall. But God sets up the kingdom that will not end. Second, he does it without our help. How is the stone cut? The stone is cut without human hands. This understanding is important to us and probably pretty important to us as we go into another election season and all the ugliness of our day, and the tendency and the temptation for Christians to attempt to lay hold of the power of government to accomplish righteousness. But guess what? It never works because power corrupts Christianity every time, and it turns into persecution because you all aren't doing what I think is right. So I call the cops and you get arrested or worse. It's not good. The only king that is wise enough to rule us is Jesus himself. So don't get caught in this season. But so... So, so he's going to set up this kingdom without human help. And then the third is, it is with the setting up of his kingdom that the current order of the world is brought to an end. Now, that's not to say that by involvement we can't make things better sometimes, and we need to do that. We need to always advocate for good. But it is to say we're never going to cure it until the kingdom of God is established in its fullness. And that won't happen until after the judgment. So how does God do this? Well, let's look at Revelation 14, 6 and 7 again. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, here's the key words for today, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship Him that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. This is the victory of God. Jesus wins it in the middle by restoring, by restoring the way back to the Father that was lost at the beginning. There's the creation and then there's the fall. Jesus wins the victory in the world for this creation that was subjected to frustration, Paul says in Romans 8 by the humans who lost their faith, then Jesus wins the victory, Romans 8 goes on to say, from bondage and decay. He liberates God's creation. The everlasting gospel is how God won the victory through Jesus, but the story isn't finished. The first angel comes to say, it's about time to wrap up the story. It's about time for it to be finished. God will restore the original order and rule through Jesus. Do you remember the part of the Lord's Prayer where it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? You've prayed that a lot of times, right? Did you ever realize that by praying that you were calling for judgment? See, heaven is the place where God's will is done. Earth is the place where God's will is not done. Thy kingdom come, cut your stone and smash the image because we're killing each other down here. That's what that phrase means. Lord, come in judgment so that your will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, until then, we seek to do God's will in our own lives, in our church, and in the world. But it won't happen in fullness until judgment comes. Judgment is how God achieves this. Now, too many times we've had a negative view on judgment, but I want you to understand this. Judgment is good news. Here's the problem for us. Fear of judgment is a sign of a privileged life. Any person who is living their life in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of fear, in the midst of pain, in the midst of torture, in slavery, in whatever context. Any person living in that reality is filling heaven with prayers for judgment. It's only when our life's not so bad that we're a little worried about judgment because I might lose something. I'll give you a perfect example of this. It comes from Revelation chapter 6. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's the saints who are crying out for judgment. But watch what happens. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe, And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So at the point in Revelation where this takes place, judgment has not yet come. But the saints are crying out that the Lord will come and bring judgment. Or or should we use another word there? Justice to the earth. There is no justice without judgment. The saints call for judgment, but God continues to extend mercy. It's only when our lives have gotten a bit too good that judgment tends to seem like a negative context. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. Many well-meaning people over the years have misused this idea of judgment. And here's how it goes. Becoming a Christian in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit should result in reformation in your life. And then we have a tendency to begin to codify what reformation we expect in the life of a believer. And then we come up with church rules. And then you don't follow the church rules, so I threaten you with judgment. And that's how it becomes negative in our eyes. So much so that if you're of a certain age in here, you heard so much negative judgment talk that you vowed you would never be that way with your own children. And as such, we've created a generation of younger people who don't know the difference between right and wrong. See how we go back and forth? It's not good. Well-meaning people have gotten us into a trap. Jesus himself says, go and sin no more. But sometimes in our frustration, because people aren't doing right, we say, do it my way or you're lost. Okay, it's not our job. We don't get to make that ruling. Too often judgment or the threat of judgment has been the whip we use on the believers instead of the warning we take to the unbelievers. The announcement of judgment is really an announcement for unbelievers, or maybe for those who aren't quite all in. This is kind of that Laodicean thing, you know? God says, I, I really want you all in. And in that sense, maybe if you're hearing this today and you're feeling a bit of a conviction in your heart, then so be it. Yes, the judgment of God has come. It's time to be all in, not Kind of. So in that sense, maybe a certain, a certain sense of fear in one's heart is not completely wrong uh, since we've all received the 2020 wake-up call, right? Who, who scheduled that anyway? That's, it's been a hard year. Fear God and give Him glory. Understand, God is great. And we need to obey his word in our lives. Why? Because he's the creator and he knows better. That's why we believe it. Jesus is overcome. He is worthy. He stands in our place. We fear the greatness of God, but we don't need to fear the judgment of God if we are found in Christ. But if you're still in rebellion and you have not put your confidence in Jesus, then then my words are words of warning. But if your confidence is in Jesus, your trust is there, the Holy Spirit is in your life, and you are seeking to live according to God's purpose in your life, then judgment is the best news I could give you. It's the victory of God. Judgment is key. For there is no victory if there is no end to this order of sin and brokenness. Judgment is God's means of putting an end to everything that remains in rebellion to God's purpose. So there's no fear in judgment for those who truly long that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, they long for it. And so I ask you, is that you? Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, John wrote about an angel that would fly with a key message of three parts. But here's the thing about it. None of these three parts are provable in the way we call things provable anymore. How many of you can prove that Jesus was the Christ of Scripture and the Son of God. That's going to be a little hard to prove, isn't it? Now there's evidence, but would we call it proof? How many of you can prove that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Where were you standing when He did it? Okay, that's going to be a little hard to prove. How many of you can prove that judgment is coming? Well, you can kind of prove that after it happens, but you can't really prove it before, can you? So isn't it interesting that all three of the things that the angel says, we can't by our normal means prove. We have to receive them by faith. Did, did you take geometry when you were back in academy? You remember geometry? You had given, and there were givens, and then you had your proof, and then it got to the bottom, and it said, therefore... And you gave your conclusion? Okay, these three things are not the therefores. These are the givens. You receive them by faith. You see, this angel expects us to believe what he knows. He expects us to believe in the everlasting gospel, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes our reality. And our response is faith in Jesus. He expects us to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he expects us to believe that in a day where so much of the culture has shifted from that. And he expects us to believe that the hour of judgment is upon us and that God is ready to finish this job. Now, something I want you to notice about those three things we just talked about. Humans don't help with any of them. How many of you advised God on the creation? We're part of the creation. We had no part of that. We receive our lives by grace. How many of you helped Jesus save us? No, in fact, we worked at odds with him and are the ones who killed him. So, no, we didn't help there. How many of you are going to help God with judgment? Nope. The three great foundational realities of the faith, we have no part in. God gives them to us by grace. And we receive them and stand on them as our foundation. Then there's the stuff we do, but that stuff is the foundation. These three things that I just described to you, faith in Jesus, God as creator, and that the hour of his judgment has come, constitute the core of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Faith in Jesus, belief in the Creator God, and belief that the hour of judgment has come. That's the core. Now we built stuff on top of that. There's more. There's doctrine. There's all kinds of things that are built on that. But that's the heart of it. A faith that begins in and is centered in Jesus Christ, faith in God as creator, and a faith that Jesus is coming again to execute the details of the victory of God. And you know what happens to us when we believe these things, when these are anchored in our heart? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Now therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we believe these things by faith, we receive them by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our suffering. Do you see how standing on this foundation can help us in practical life? We glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This perseverance word is going to show up in the third angel. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks from now. This is that hupomone word. If you've been around here long enough, you've heard that one thrown around. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. So those who are standing by faith on this foundation, they'll suffer, but it will lead to perseverance, which will develop character, which will result in hope. And they will live in hope in this time. Hope in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Hope in God as the loving creator. And the hope in the promise that Jesus will come again and put God's world back to the way it was in the beginning. This is the faith that gives us hope. Jesus is Savior and Lord. God is creator of all things. And Jesus is coming again soon. That's a full faith right there. That's a full hope right there. It centers in Jesus. It centers in the work he has done the victory he has won. I pray we will have this hope today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we live as your people in this day. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.